0: World Evidence and answers. The virgin birth is as essential to the Christmas story as the incarnation. However, critics allege that a virgin birth is not possible or reasonable to believe in. Why was it necessary? And is it reasonable to believe in a virgin birth? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Pat presents a case for the virgin birth of Christ in part two of his message entitled, Defense of the Virgin Birth.
1: Well, Hera, Zeus's wife, in a very jealous rage, whispers doubts in the ears of Samil that, indeed, Zeus is the father, and she begins to doubt that Zeus is the father of this child. Well, deeply troubled, Samil demands that Zeus appear, but he refuses to do so. And finally, he appears, and Samil is burnt to a crisp. Deeply troubled. Zeus takes the fetus from the womb of Samil and sews it into his thigh. Okay? And the embryo grows and eventually comes to full maturity in the, quote, virgin birth of Dionysus. Okay? You can see the strong parallel between that and the virgin birth of Christ. What about Augustus Caesar? Well, according to legend here, his mother was worshiping in the temple of Apollo, and she fell asleep. And the sun god Apollo came in the form of a snake and impregnated the mother of Augustus Caesar. Creepy story, man. Whoever came up with that one, man, ooh, creepy. You ever handled snakes? Ooh, slimy things. Well, anyway, well, so as you can see, okay, when you study these Greek myths themselves, they hardly parallel the virgin birth account of Christ. So. The Gospels are historical works confirmed by historical records and archaeology. The Greek legends are indeed legends. They're myths. They don't have the character of historical accounts, nor do they have any historical facts to corroborate their historical veracity. And when you study the Greek myths themselves, it's mostly about God's having adulterous affairs with human women, they hardly parallel the virgin birth account of Christ. So a virgin birth account is reasonable because an all-powerful God exists. If there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God. And the allegation that it comes from Greek mythology is a very weak argument. Well, is there a case for the virgin birth of Christ? Can we build a case for that? Well, the first line of evidence comes from Bible prophecy. The virgin birth was predicted centuries before. In the Old Testament, the very first messianic prophecy occurs in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. There, the author writes, I'll put God states this to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When it comes to Bible prophecy, there are over 500 prophecies predicted in the Bible which have come to pass. There's no other book that even comes close to the record and accuracy of biblical prophecy. They study them all. Nothing comes close. When it comes to the prophecies regarding Jesus Christ, there are over a hundred prophecies of Christ which have come to pass. Absolutely an incredible record, none like you have in any book throughout the history of mankind. So when the Bible predicts a virgin birth, okay, we can be sure that it's going to take place. Now, Genesis 3:15. If you take a look here, this is the first Messianic prophecy here. It says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. All right. Now, this phrase, her offspring, or in some of your translations, it will say, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. This phrase is important to note because in a patriarchal society, the lineage is traced Through the Father. But here it only mentions the woman, okay, between your seed and her seed, or between your offspring and her offspring. Right? It implies that the Messiah would be human and come through the birth of a woman, but not a natural father. The next one, the famous one here, Isaiah 7 14, that we recite often here at this time of the year. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the Hebrew word for virgin there is the Hebrew word Alma. Skeptics and critics, I got attacked on this one a few weeks ago by our atheist friend here, and he said Alma doesn't mean virgin. Alma in the Hebrew means young maiden. It can mean a young maiden who's, Married or not married. It can mean either one. All right? So this is no proof of a miraculous virgin birth. This is not the prophecy of a virgin birth. Alma can mean either one. And I said, you are correct. Alma can mean young maiden who is married or young maiden who is not married. But when you do a word study in the Old Testament of the word Alma, every time it is used, It is used of a young, unmarried woman. Okay? For example, Genesis chapter 24. uh, Abraham tells his servant, go to the land of Canaan for my forefathers and find me a young Alma for my son Isaac to marry. I hope he wasn't looking for a married woman. All right? He was looking for a young, unmarried woman for Isaac to marry. Whenever you see that word used, you do a word study in the Old Testament, it means virgin. A young, unmarried woman. For this reason, the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated by the Jews. Not the Christians. It's translated by the Jews. It was completed in the 3rd century BC, 300 years before Christ. They translate the word Alma properly to the Greek word Parthenos, which means virgin. So the virgin birth is prophesied in the old testament and there are also hints in historical records that even the enemies of christ knew that there were strange and unique circumstances around his birth in john chapter 8 jesus is having a debate with the jewish leaders and the jewish leaders say well we don't need to need to listen to you because our father is abraham and jesus said this If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. And the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus and say, we are not illegitimate children. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. That's a strange response to give to Jesus, isn't it? We are not illegitimate children or children of adultery, as some of your translations read. The enemies of Christ, even they understood there's unique circumstances under Christ's birth. Joseph was not his father. Mary was pregnant before they were married, as the gospel records record. The Jewish Talmud, a commentary on the Old Testament law, states that Jesus' birth was the result of. Mary having immoral relations with a Roman soldier. So the Jews understood that there is something peculiar about the birth of Christ, that Joseph is not the father, the biological father of Jesus. Now, this is the kind of rumor and allegation you would expect from skeptics who deny the miraculous birth of Christ. How else? Would they account for Mary's birth if not a virgin birth? These are the kind of accusations you would expect. So, the virgin birth is possible. If there is a God who can act, there can be acts of God. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and historical records show that even Christ's enemies knew that there was something unusual about the birth of Jesus Christ. So, we have a reasonable case for the virgin birth. Now, the next question is this. Why did God need to do it that way? Why did we need a virgin birth? Well, there's many reasons why God had to do it this way, but here's just a couple. First is to fulfill prophecy. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah who had redeemed the world had to be human, right? He needed to come from the seed Of a woman not only did he have to be human he needed to be divine isaiah 9 6 for to us a child is born so he has to be human to us a son is given and his name shall be wonderful counselor everlasting father mighty god prince of peace so not only would he have to be human he has to be divine and okay He will sit upon the throne of his father, David, and rule an everlasting kingdom. He had to be a descendant of King David. All right, so to fulfill many of these prophecies, being virgin born of Mary fulfills the biblical prophecies given of the Messiah. He was born human from the seed of Mary, and Mary is a descendant of King David. That's fulfilling biblical prophecy. But not only that, we needed a Savior who was human, but also perfect, one without sin. How is that possible? How could absolute holiness reside in a body of sinful human flesh? Throughout the generations, the human body has inherited the sin nature from our forefathers, Adam and Eve. Along with genetic and physical defects. The Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, needed to be perfect without sin, without blemish. But in order to be a savior of men, he had to be of flesh or human, but perfect without sin. How is that possible? Well, it's not possible through the normal reproductive process. If Jesus was conceived in the same way, as other humans, he would inherit the sin nature and a defective body which would disqualify him from being the perfect savior of mankind. Therefore, Christ's virgin birth keeps him fully holy from inheriting the sin nature and the defective human sinful body. So the virgin birth fulfills the requirements of Bible prophecy and a perfect Sacrifice who is one hundred percent man, one hundred percent God? only a man could be a perfect sacrifice for man, only God in the flesh could be perfect and without sin. Well, what is the significance for us? Well there's several. we'll just go over a few. If Jesus was virgin born, then he has a miraculous entry into the world, and he is indeed the divine Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed it through his miraculous, sinless life, death, and resurrection. Only God can create life. In Exodus chapter 8, the magicians could counterfeit all of Moses' miracles except one, when Moses created life out of the dust of the earth. At that point, the magicians said, we can't copy this. This is the finger of God. Only God can create life. We still don't know how we get life from non life. Listen to my interviews with the top scientists from around the world. Science has never been able to prove that. Only God can create life. So, virgin birth is further affirmation that Jesus Christ is indeed the divine Son of God. Secondly, we have a unique, sinless, savior no other person in the history of the world can claim to be sinless muhammad was a sinner Read his biography and several times in the quran all right he's told to confess and repent and turn from his sin all right in fact the famous satanic verses he said it was okay to worship the gods of his clan all right then later he said he had to repent and god was going to Seriously, bring judgment upon him, but he repented from that sin. And later he says, Well, that occurred because I was possessed by the devil. All right? Well, so he was not a sinless savior. Buddha was a sinner who struggled with desire. Confucius talked about the perfect gentleman in his Analects, and he says of the perfect gentleman, I have not attained the status of perfect gentleman, nor have I ever seen one who is. In Christ, we have a unique and perfect, sinless Savior. As a result, then, only Jesus qualifies to be the Savior of the world, who could meet God's standards of holiness and righteousness and justice and pay the full penalty for our sin. No other person can be that perfect sacrifice and Savior of the world. Therefore, only Jesus can bring eternal life. John 14:6 Jesus said, "I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." He is the only one that qualifies as the savior of the world. Next, we have a God who can relate to us in every way. God saw us in our struggle, in our fallen state, and instead of looking down from heaven saying, good luck guys, hope you make it, work really hard and maybe you can get here to heaven, we have a God who left his heavenly throne, took upon himself the limitations of humanity and entered into our fallen world and died a horrible death to rescue us from sin and death. We have a God who entered and struggled alongside us and suffered alongside us. We have a God who can relate to us in every way. In all our struggles, in all our pains, in all our doubts, in all our fears, we have a God who, the scripture says, also suffered and can relate to us in every way. I remember interviewing a former Muslim, Abdul Murray, And I said, Abdul, what brought you from Islam to Christ? And he said, well, in Islam, we focus on the greatness of Allah. And he said, when I studied the God of the Bible and the God of Islam, I saw in Jesus Christ the greatness of Allah. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he said, the picture is like this. We're all in a swimming pool and we're all drowning. And Allah of the Quran looks down on us and says, good luck, guys really hard and hope hope you can save yourself but he said when i came to study the god of the bible he saw us in that swimming pool struggling for life and instead of standing there saying good luck guys he jumped in the pool with us okay, and struggled with us to rescue us from sin and death he said now of the two which one is a great god and i said it has to be the god of the bible So we have a great God who abandoned his heavenly throne, came down and suffered alongside of us to rescue us from sin and death. And that's the glory of the virgin birth. That's the glorious message of Christmas. You know, when I was looking through and reading stories about World War II back on December 7th, because we're preparing a radio show for that on the 808 State Update with uh, former Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona, I came across this story, which doesn't quite do it, but in a way kind of represents in an allegorical way what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's an old story of World War II, the Battle of Hürtgen Forest in Germany. This was one of the longest battles fought in World War II, lasting from September of 1944, lasting six months till February of 1945, at the cost Of 33,000 American lives and 30,000 German lives. Well, on October 7th, 1994, people saw a strange sight over the Hurtgen War Cemetery there in Germany. The cemetery here is the final home of over 3,000 soldiers, mostly German from World War II. And so it's quite common to see Germans gathering there to honor they're dead. But on this special day on October 7th, 1994, members of the 22nd Infantry of the United States Army were there to honor and build a memorial in honor of the German commander who died there, Lieutenant Frederick Langfeld. And the reason they built that memorial is this, in the midst of this long Bloody battle that cost thousands of lives, the Americans lost control of the town of Schmidt and then retreated. During their quick and hasty retreat, they left behind a wounded soldier in a pit who lay there for hours crying for help. Well, Lieutenant Langfield had become the commander of his German battalion because his commander was killed. And he heard the man shouting and screaming for help, the voice of his enemy soldiers. And his soldiers looked at him and said, shoot the guy, put him out of his misery, shoot the man, or let's drop a grenade on him and put the man out of his misery. Well, Lieutenant Langfield looked at the man long and hard, and then he ordered all of his men to stop shooting. And he said, someone go out and rescue that man. And everybody said, he's the enemy. We ain't going out there. And besides, Lieutenant, that field is covered with mines. Hey, there's no way to get out there and rescue that man without stepping on a mine. And the Lieutenant said, very well. He said, give me four medical men, and I myself will go there and rescue this man. And so with four of the German medical corps, he stepped onto that dangerous field and proceeded out to rescue this U.S. soldier crying in pain in a pit. Well, he meandered his way through the minefield and made it to the soldier, and they lifted him out of the pit. However, as the group made their way back, the Lieutenant Langfield stepped on a mine and was killed trying to save the life of his enemy so when you go there to the seminary today, there is that memorial placed there by the men of the United States 22nd Infantry. And the plaque on that memorial reads this. No man hath greater love than he lay down his life for his enemy." In a way, that's what Jesus Christ did for us. We were all enemies of God, worthy of eternal judgment. And we lay there in the pits of sin, in a pitiful state, crying out to God for help, or someone for help. And God looked down upon us, and he did not have to, but he chose to leave his heavenly throne, come down to this fallen earth, and in the process of redeeming us from that pit of sin and death, suffered most horrible death Of torture and crucifixion upon the cross to rescue us from sin and death even though we were enemies of God undeserving of all that he had done. That's the message of the cross and that's the message of Christmas. That's the greatness of the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we have come to understand your birth and the meaning of Christmas this day. May we come to a greater understanding as we celebrate it in these next couple of days. Lord, pray we would never take for granted all that has been done to rescue us from sin and death and the greatness of the sacrifice that you made to give everything you had to rescue us who are so unworthy of your son, Jesus Christ. May we cherish the full meaning of Christmas and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: run out of time thank you for joining us here on evidence and answers radio broadcast we hope you enjoyed pat's show today if you would like pat to speak at your church or bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference please give him a call locally that number is 483-0586 or you may contact him through the evidence and answers website that's evidence to keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure and share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.